really challenging for patients to manage pain, especially with you know pediatric populations. Pain management is really difficult um, to get access to and and to be taken seriously in children. So a lot of young people with EDS um, deal with constant chronic pain. I mean, some patients say they can't remember the last time they were in pain. It's been years. This is the Innovatively Speaking podcast brought to you by the Medical University of South Carolina. It's a place where we dive into the origins of the next big things, the who, the why, and the how of ideas that are changing what's possible here at the Medical University of South Carolina, and in some cases, all across the world. I'm Kevin Smith here in the MUSC podcast studio with my co-host, Dr. Jesse Goodwin. Good morning, Dr. Jesse. Good morning, Kevin. Jesse, you are the Chief Innovation Officer here at MUSC. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about today's guests. I'm really excited about today's guests because I think that the impact of what they're working on has uh, could be profound uh, and, and serve a huge number of patients sort of internationally. The guests for today are Dr. Chip Norris, who's Professor of Regenerative Medicine and Cell Biology. And we're also going to be talking with Dr. Courtney Gensimer, who is a postdoctoral scholar in the Norris Lab. Um, Jesse, tell me how you became aware of Dr. Norris and Dr. Gensimer and their work in this area of Ehler-Danlos syndrome. Uh, so I've actually known Chip for several years. Uh, so I've been at MUSC for 10 years, and I think I met Chip pretty early on in that time. So we go back pretty close to a decade. And um, I think I originally met him when he was working on his other projects uh, as part of his mitral valve prolapse uh, studies within his lab. Um, and then more recently, it came to my attention that he had ha- made this really exciting discovery. And so I had reached out to, to Chip um, to have him come in and tell me more. All right, well, let's dive in. Dr. Norris, Dr. Gensmer, welcome to the MUSC podcast studio. Let's start by defining Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and how you guys began doing this research. Yeah, thanks for having us. So um, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome um, is really a group of connective tissue disorders. There are 13 recognized subtypes, um, and they all really cause a, a constellation of symptoms affecting the whole body. They include things like joint hypermobility, and that can lead to joint dislocations, tendon and ligament issues. Um, they can also have cardiovascular manifestations, uh, skin issues, gastrointestinal problems. But our work is really focused on the hypermobile subtype of EDS, and um, the hypermobile subtype is actually the most common subtype of EDS, but has uh, really not had a known genetic marker um, since it's been defined as a condition. So our work has really been focused on trying to understand that. And let's talk about maybe the, the how widespread is this syndrome? I, honestly, before this podcast, I hadn't really heard of it much. Yeah, it's, it's uh, well, first of all, it's great to be here. Um, and so uh, Ehlers-Danlos is... Um, the, the, it's known as the most common disease you've never heard of. Um, and so there's probably a reason why you hadn't heard of it. Um, we're trying to change that. The, the prevalence of the disease is really, um, there aren't that many great studies out there um, showing the exact numbers. Uh, there's a study really that we're basing our numbers on, which is, that showed it to be about one in 500 people. Um, and if you talk to physicians who see these patients, they'll say it's more common than that. Um, so our, you know, I think we're, we're going with the one in 300 to one in 500 number, uh, somewhere in there. So that's, that's, um, it's certainly, it's Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Certainly the other subtypes are viewed as, as exceedingly rare or rare diseases. Um, 
but this subtype is seems to be far, far more common. Well, there was a connection between you guys on this particular subject, correct? Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I actually have hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome myself, and uh, I really wasn't diagnosed until college, which is a, a fairly common story, but I had symptoms my whole life. And um, part of my experience struggling with my health and, you know, not getting diagnosed and things like that really inspired me to want to pursue a, a career in research or medicine and um, led me to applying to MUSC. Uh, but once I got in, I really wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do. I didn't, you know, plan on studying Ehlers-Danlos because no one studies it. And so that wasn't really an option. Um, but I met Dr. Norris on the first day of grad school at orientation. He spoke to all the new students and just said, you know, I've been here for a long time. I even did my PhD here and I'm happy to help students if you ever feel lost or need help sort of navigating the PhD process. And he was the first friendly face I saw. I had no idea what he studied, but I reached out and I said, you know, can we set up a time to talk? And I think like two days later I, I met with him. And he just started introducing me to his research on mitral valve prolapse and asked me if I knew what it was. And I said, yeah, because mitral valve prolapse occurs in Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and people in my family have it. And so he asked me what type of EDS I had, what my gene mutation was. Um, and I told him that the hypermobile type didn't have a known gene. And I think he actually didn't believe me at first. <laughs> he was like, you know, oh, no, we know the genes for the Ehlers-Danlos syndromes. And I was like, not this type. And um, the conversation quickly kind of turned into, do you, do you want to try to find it? On the first, my first meeting with him ever. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so I obviously chose to rotate in the lab um, and that rotation turned into staying in the lab. And now that rotation turned into a postdoc <laughs> yeah. in the lab. So um, that, that sort of chance meeting and, and him giving that opportunity to research something I'm passionate about um, changed my entire sort of trajectory of my PhD and my career. Yeah, I think I think it was um, cer certainly not not something that I had ever anticipated working on. It was always a slide in my presentations that patients with Ehlers-Danlos had um, higher incidence of mitral valve prolapse, and and that was it. Um, and I, you know, she was telling me about the the disease. I'm like, well, why isn't? It seems like it's so common and so debilitating. How is nobody studying this? Um, and so I, you know, it, in order to pivot or build on build one's research program in a lab you know yeah you, you have to do some sort of homework and try to understand the disease a little bit more and when she told me that there wasn't a, a, a diagnostic tool or a genetic uh, marker for it um, you know I looked into that make sure that you know she's a young student so making sure she's she's right about that and and the prevalence and the burden like what you know what is the real need for this for this patient population is there a real need and um so yeah so from that we um we we you know started working on it she started working on it she you know she was when she when i said well do you want to find the gene for or find a gene for for eds for heds um, she said, you know, we can do that or you can do that. And I said, no, but, but you can, I'm not going to, it's like your project now, um, or hopefully what's going to be her project. And, and it, yeah. I mean, I was sitting there, a brand new PhD student, like f finding a gene. I was like, I, I was, I was on the wait list. I didn't even get in here right away. So, you know, I, I was like, oh, is this guy crazy or is this the coolest opportunity yeah, Maybe ever? a little bit of both. Yeah. <laughs> But I think as a, being a scientist and being in charge of a lab, you you should have flexibility to 
to be creative and open your mind and and be innovative and try to you know g- get out of the box a little bit and and explore new things that's we have the ability to do that and we should yeah so i think that's actually a great segue to the question that i always like to start with because i like to talk about innovation as a creative solution to a pain point because um, i think that that's really helpful for for sort of setting the context for why we do what we do around here and so so what are the types of symptoms that eds patients uh, struggle with Yeah, so I I always like to talk about this to emphasize that it really is a spectrum, um, and every patient is going to be totally different in how they present. But um, typically the main complaints are a lot of musculoskeletal issues. So it's not uncommon for patients to um, have multiple orthopedic surgeries, spinal surgeries, uh, need to use um, braces on their joints or mobility aids, things like that, to kind of be able to even just walk around and get through life. Um, or even in some cases, um, patients might not even be able to walk. And then there are um, a, a kind of constellation of other symptoms that can be present or, or absent depending on the patient. Um, sometimes that's uh, gastrointestinal issues. So patients may have gastroparesis or delayed emptying of their stomach. They might have um, irritable bowel syndrome or uh mast cell activation syndrome that affects their GI tract. So for those patients, um, sometimes they need constant medication, they might need feeding tubes, they might struggle to eat anything orally, depending on how they present. Um, And then a lot of uh, cardiovascular manifestations. So a lot of patients have POTS, um, which is postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Um, It's been talked about a lot with uh, long COVID recently, but um, POTS can cause patients to have issues with passing out, feeling lightheaded, um, struggling to go from sitting to standing, a lot of fatigue. Um, There's also some neurological manifestations, so a lot of headaches. Patients can have Chiari malformation or craniocervical instability, which is what Dr. Patel here at MUSC sees a lot of patients for. Um, But I would say the main things are really a lot of complaints of chronic pain, um, a lot of joint issues, a lot of fatigue, and then a a combination of comorbidities depending on the patient. And And these aren't like, the pain isn't just like sore muscles, and, and joints, right? I mean, it's like, it's real pain. Yeah, it's it's really challenging for patients to manage pain, especially with, you know, pediatric populations. Pain management is really difficult um, to get access to and, and to be taken seriously in children. So a lot of young people with EDS um, deal with constant chronic pain. I mean, some patients say they can't remember the last time they weren't in pain. It's been years. That is... Absolutely crazy to, bruising, to think about. You know, bruising in the kids um, is is a big thing because you know kids who may have not necessarily had a diagnosis already, but they ha- they're in a family that has has EDS. Um, you know, that if they go to the ER and a physician sees that the kids got bruising all over just from running into um, you know a table. Their vascular beds are, and their capillary beds are very leaky, and so I mean, she, Courtney, has these massive I, bruises. I bump into just, something and laugh, and just from bump, just from not, not, it's not like you know a big bump, and so it's really tragic because you know they'll they'll have social workers and come in and take kids away. One of the things as I was you know, doing my own sort of basic research on this uh, in preparation for recording this episode. Um, 
that I thought was really interesting was that, particularly with the hypermobile type, um, that a lot of the patients told stories of this being uh, seen as something that they should you know, sort of utilize in their use. So they're put into gymnastics and sports that require a lot of flexibility. So their parents actually see this as an advantage and want to encourage it and start putting them into activities that would seemingly, you know, go along with being hypermobile and it just ultimately causes progressive damage. And um, to me, it was a little shocking because I, you know, know as a parent myself that these are the types of things that you look for in your kids. Like how can you promote their strengths, you know, Um, and how crushing it would be as a parent to, to figure out later on um, that you may have missed something and been causing harm. I think my parents kind of went through that feeling later on, you know, after I was diagnosed. It was right away like, oh, I'm sorry we pushed you so hard in sports and and things like that. I remember, you know, having an injury to my shoulder, having surgery, and then being praised in physical therapy two weeks later when my range of motion was back to normal already. And it was like, oh, you're recovering great. And I was like, it doesn't feel great. They're like, yeah, but your range of motion, it's so good. And so sort of even the readouts for progress after an injury or surgery might look different in EDS where, you know, if you have a shoulder that's dislocating and then you have great range of motion after that might not be a great sign. This is maybe a good segue to talk about the challenge of not having a a genetic variant, a known genetic variant that you can test for. And so maybe you guys can comment a little bit on on what that would mean uh, to this patient population to be able to diagnose it early on. So right now for hypermobile EDS, um, the way you really get diagnosed is through your physician going through a set of clinical diagnostic criteria. Uh, There's essentially a checklist that looks at joint hypermobility. So can you do these specific things that show that your joints are hypermobile, that we can kind of measure that? And then looking at um, more systemic manifestations. So the things I talked about, like mitral valve prolapse and some other things, you know, is the skin stretchy? Um, Does the patient have abnormal scarring? And you sort of just check through these boxes. And then at the end, you say, okay, did we meet enough things to call this a diagnosis? Um, The unfortunate part is that unless you have a physician who's super knowledgeable and is familiar with it, they will probably never even pull out this checklist. Um, They might not even know that hypermobile EDS doesn't have a genetic marker. So they might think that, you know, you don't have it because you didn't have a gene come up on a panel, things like that. So it's, it can take a really long time. And, you know, the issue is that patients see doctors in every specialty, right? So you see your shoulder orthopedic for a shoulder issue and you see your GI doctor for something else and you see your dentist for something else and they're not talking to each other to say, why does, why does this person have all of these problems, right? Is it part of something bigger? Um, And to finally find out can be really validating, I think, because you're like, okay, I don't have 23 things wrong with me. I mean, you do, but they're all caused by one common underlying cause. Um, So it can be really, really validating for patients to finally receive a diagnosis. And I think going forward with our genetics, um, it's even more validating to be able to have a solid definitive test. And I'll let um, Chip talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think it's what the patients really want is, you know, I'd say the vast majority of physicians are dismissive, um, especially, you know, we in our registry, um, we see that a large number of these patients are teenage girls and the physicians just say, oh, you're having growing pains. And it's like, no, but I have, you know, and some of these have, some of these girls have already had four or five, six surgeries by the time that they're 20 years old. Um, and they still get dismissed. So, you know, having a diagnostic tool, having a genetic marker is tangible evidence that 
they shouldn't be dismissed, um, and that they that this is truly a a disease that needs to be taken seriously. Um, and so, you know, it also provides um, support for families. Um, if you if you're a mom, and I'm just saying moms and girls because 90% of the patient population with EDS is female. Really? 90%? 90%. Um, And that's from previous studies and from our uh, study, which is probably the largest, um, it is the largest registry right now. Um, So yeah, 90, 91% are females. And the fact that the genetics tracks through families, if you have a child, you are going to want to know if they have this disease. It's sort of like having a BRCA1 mutation. You want to know. Having a diagnostic tool, having a genetic marker, provides an opportunity for families to be screened and know that when their child is growing that, hey, maybe they shouldn't be in gymnastics. Maybe they shouldn't be stretching out their ligaments to to the point where they're never going to come back. It also gives us an, an inroads to, if we have a genetic marker or a genetic cause of the disease, it gives us the ability in the in the lab to make models and, and try to understand what is, what's really causing the disease and is there anything that we can do for those patients who have a lot of problems um, down the road. So, you know, it gives us an opportunity to make animal models and um, under, understand that process. So it's really the, for us, it's the starting point um, of the study is is developing these markers. So on um, sort of your journey of innovation, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about your pain points at the beginning. So can you guys talk now about your aha moment uh, as you're working towards sort of where we're going with this next? We talked a little bit about this. So can you guys describe your aha moment where you thought you found the marker? Um, so there's going to be multiple markers. Um, there's going to be multiple genes. Um, the... Right. So when, when we did this, we had a large family. Um, people had done genetics on Ehlers-Danlos before on this t- subtype of Ehlers-Danlos and it hadn't been revealing. Um, and the our approach was to try to find a very large family. Um, and the, you have a, you have a bit more genetic power with, with larger families. Um, it's because you can watch a track through the family and, and be able to have an easier time finding finding what's tracking. So we had a large family, had um, nine affecteds uh, in the family through four generations. And so that was um, going to provide a good starting point. And so we, the approach was fairly simple. We just did whole exome sequencing on the two most distant re- related individuals who were affected and uh, got the sequence back. Um, and then we had Joe Delaney here at MUSC, who's a cancer geneticist, um, do the analysis of the whole exomes. And he was the one who actually said that he's never had a, uh, had an aha moment in genetics, but this was this was one because he said, "Look, you've got what was it nine share nine variants that are rare, shared between affecteds and potentially damaging." Um, but there's really one that stands out above all the others. And so, you know, we sequenced that one throughout the entire family and that was the one that was tracking perfectly through the family. And so, and biologically it made sense. 
Um, and so it was like, oh, wow, that was, yeah, that's, and it wasn't, the, all the other types of EDS are, they're all related to collagen, collagen genes or collagen related genes. Um, and so people are thinking that this is going to be a similar thing that's related to, to collagen or maybe it's a collagen gene. Um, so it's what we found was not a collagen gene, but it can be, um, it can be related to collagen biology uh, in some way. So I, I feel like in the field of science, uh, so many of us wait, you know, our whole careers to have something where we find that that one result um, that can be really life altering. And so, Courtney, how did it feel to find it so early in your academic career? Yeah, it was uh, it was crazy. And I think it was kind of funny because I think when it happened, um, Chip was really excited and I was like kind of excited. And he was like, why aren't you excited? And I was like, I don't know. Like, I just, are we sure? Like, what, what if we're wrong? And I, I had all these like fears because I just felt too good to be true. Like, I was like, this can't be right. This can't be right. And then I think it hit me like a little later than it hit him that, you know, this is, this is something. And I think maybe I had my guard up a little bit because, you know, I'm a patient, right? So I didn't want to like be over the moon excited right away because I think for me, it wouldn't just be a scientific disappointment, but it would be like a personal disappointment. Um, but, but now I think all the time I'm like, is this really my life? Like, am I really doing this? I, it's sort of like, I didn't ever plan for my career to go this way, but it's now I couldn't imagine doing anything else. I couldn't like possibly work on anything else. I don't think. And, and I will say that, you know, when we, when we, we're still saying that the gene is a candidate gene, um, and we're saying that until it's published and then we'll say it's a gene, but, um, I think it's important to, to sort of. You know, we, we are, the data are to us very convincing, but it, it needs to be reviewed by, um, you know, a scientific journal. So, which will be in the next few months. So, well, take it down to a lay level, if you will. Um, say young Courtney got this information. Um, tell me what that would do for you moving forward and maybe what kind of benefits. Yeah, absolutely. So, I think that. You know, you know, when we talk about diagnosis, although there's not a treatment, uh, early diagnosis can make a big difference. And this has been shown and, and published that patients who are diagnosed earlier have better outcomes, less comorbidities, less surgeries, less complications down the road. So, you know, if I had known in childhood um, and I didn't do gymnastics and I didn't run competitively and play college lacrosse in the beginning of college, um, all of those things are part of the reason why I've had so many issues today. A lot of my injuries are a consequence of all the extra stress I put on my body. So, you know, my parents could have steered me towards, you know, more creative activities like art or music rather than um, running basically 24 seven. Uh, and there's a lot of other things too, that could have made a difference in terms of my care. So if you're having, <clears throat> if you're having a surgery or you're having, um, even, even an emergency, say you're in a car accident and you're taken to the hospital, having EDS on your chart when a physician is knowledgeable can change the care that you receive. So even simple things like you're having a surgery and they know that EDS patients don't heal as well from surgical incisions. They're going to do extra things to be careful on how they close the incision so that patients won't have their wound reopen, won't be at increased risk of infection, things like that. Um, 
you know, one time I was unfortunately in a car accident and I was brought to MUSC and I had EDS on my chart. And so the first thing that the physicians here did was check my aorta and make sure that, you know, everything was okay that could have been at risk of um, tissue damage during the accident. So there are really important benefits to, to having an earlier diagnosis in lifestyle choices and in how physicians might approach you with a health issue. And for us in our registry, we can only, we're only IRB approved to accept patients who have a clinical um, diagnosis of HEDS. So we can't take those patients. So the point is that physicians, look, if they have the disease, give them that on their chart so we can, we can enroll them. And I think having a diagnosis, it, you know, there's a lot of online community for EDS. And so having a diagnosis makes people, you know, join those communities and then they might learn about a doctor who's really knowledgeable so they can try and see that doctor. And it just opens all these doors of possibilities to improve their care. I mean, for most patients with EDS, they're going to be in physical therapy most of their life. Just having a diagnosis can help with getting a physical therapy appointment, going to regular physical therapy, trying to prevent um, more issues down the road. I think that's a big part of EDS is really more prevention. Uh, so if you can start physical therapy with a child, um, teach them how to protect their joints, things like that, you can try to prevent more of the long-term issues. You guys mentioned um, a few times the registry that you're creating, but you, can you get, describe that in a little bit more detail? Sure. When, when we... Uh, started this, um, you know, we needed to get IRB approval, and and I thought, okay, you know, this is gonna not be gonna be a, a big deal. Uh, we'll get IRB approval. We'll develop this registry. And I remember talking to Dan Judge, who's a cardiologist here, who's um, expert in car- cardiovascular genetics, and he said, "Are you prepared prepared for what's gonna happen?" I said, oh, you know, this, yeah, sure. It's, there's going to be 50 people who register and we're going to get some, you know, some families and stuff. And he's like, y- you might be surprised. Because um, he's, he was, he's very familiar with HEDS and is one of the um, physicians who can diagnose it and here at MUSC. And so we, um, we're not allowed to um, advertise our registries at MUSC. So somehow word got out. Um, not through any source of us, but, um, and literally overnight it became the world's largest registry in 24 hours with over a thousand people in one, in one night, um, or yeah, one, one or two days, something like that. Um, that was two, two Christmases ago, two Decembers ago, right? Um, and so that was, you know, that was a bit scary for for me as an investigator like what am i going to what am i going to do how am i going to manage this because you know i'm i'm a scientist i'm not a i don't i don't run large registries <laughs> so um so we had to figure figure it out um and so we partnered with sector here um and we have six or seven clinical coordinators who are on um and doing the registry for us uh, which is amazing um yeah, it's 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 been it's been incredible. Um, we are continuing to enroll. We have four thousand over four thousand now, uh, and it's it it really provides an amazing amount of information uh, about the patients. And what what's also really telling is that you know whenever you have a registry that that gets that much interest in that short of time, 
it tells you that the public is wanting that to happen. And it's just sort of, you know, how it's spread throughout the country and across um, uh, transatlantic, you know, is it, just uh, amazing. I mean, we, we have people from all over Western Europe who want to enroll. We have people from Australia. Um, right now, we can only enroll people in the in the U.S., but you know, it's 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 very telling that that these people want somebody to be working on it, and and so you know the process is very simple. They do a pre-consent, um, and then we register them for an actual consent with one of the clinical coordinators. And once that's done, and they're el- deemed eligible, then we ship them a saliva kit. And it's just that's all they're donating is their spit, um, and that is where we begin with our genetics. And so that was really an incredible, incredibly scary time. I remember that day when my email just was just kept going off. Um, And I'm like, I gotta go. I can't, (laughs) I can't, I I, I don't know what to do with these thousand patients. Um, uh, And then we figured it out. I mean, we, we were able to mobilize the team pretty quickly. During uh, our preliminary conversation, um, before we got uh, here to the podcast studio, one of the things that you said that stood out to me was you were having the patients uh, work on this themselves, do do the research themselves. I don't know if I'm using the right terminology, but it was fascinating to me that that you're kind of equipping them to do some work. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so I think this really sort of um, stemmed from me and, and being, you know, a patient, but also being a scientist in the lab. And we started getting requests from, you know, undergraduate students who wanted research experience, who wanted to go to med school or graduate school uh, and reaching out and saying, you know, do you take undergrads? Do you take volunteer um, interns? Things like that. So we decided to start an intern program in our lab. Um, we wanted it to be a program that gave students with hypermobile EDS themselves the opportunity to do research in the lab over the summer, provide them with housing, provide them with a stipend, um, and really make sure that they were given everything they needed to succeed, even with having you know disabilities and a chronic illness in the lab. So we started this last summer for the first time, and we had four students last summer. This summer we have five students. Uh, they're from all over the country. They're in various stages in their education journey. So you know some are undergraduate students. Uh, one of them is a postback who's a little non-traditional and decided she wants to go to med school because of having EDS. We have a med student. Um, and it's really been an, an awesome opportunity because I think when you have a condition that's been neglected clinically and in terms of research, uh, the patients are really the expert on their own disease. And, and extremely motivated, I would think, as well. Yes, huh? absolutely. And, and so I think, you know, having their their insight is so different from any paper that you can read. I mean, there's so many times where I say this is an EDS thing and then I look in the literature and I don't find it anywhere. But, you know, every physician who sees these patients knows that that happens in EDS. So I think patients, you know, they they can really ask the right um, important clinical questions. But then because of their science background and because of the tools that we give them, we they have the opportunity to try and answer those questions in the lab. So it's um, something we're going to continue to do, and I think that it's um, it makes the research really powerful, and I think it means a lot to patients to know that the scientists working on it, you know, have their best interests and are part of the patient community. When, when we listen to the patients, um, one of the things that we hear 
frequently um, is that physi physicians discount this disease. And so why? And how are we, or, or if you don't even care about the why, how, how are we going to change that? Because it needs to be changed. And so the, the way to change, how do you change perception about a disease? Um, and so the, the way to do that, in, in, in our opinion, my opinion, um, is to, you really have to start with education. And these currently, right now, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, the whole spectrum of Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, of which there are 13, 14 subtypes, um, gets one slide on a medical school lecture. It is one question on the, on the step, uh, step one boards. And the question is something like, you know, lists the connective tissue disease or is, is Ehlers-Danlos a connective tissue disease? There's, it's woefully misperceived um, and the education in, uh, you know, clinical schools, healthcare settings is, is, is just absent. Um, and so we need to change that at the very basic level. And starting with these interns, the goal is, <clears throat> you know, over the next, we, we recently received funding for three more years of the, of the intern program, uh, fully funded through the Fullerton Foundation, which is amazing. Um, we'll have, in the end, we'll have 15 or 20 people in our lab who have gone through and, and the goal is for them to all go into healthcare settings. Nursing, PT, medicine, science, um, psychiatry, doesn't like anything, but staying focused on Ehlers-Danlos. And in doing so, they then will be educating the 200 or 250 you know, med students that they teach. And so by doing that, then you can change the perception. Um, we're working with Donna Kern um, at MUSC to, to try to change the medical school curriculum to, uh, to be able to implement new lectures on Ehlers-Danlos because it's going to be something that the physicians see. It's going to be something that every healthcare provider will see. And so they need to get educated. And in that way, what we're doing, yes, it's great for the for these kids to come in and, and do some science on, around their disease and they're very passionate about it, but they need to move that forward. And um, and in doing so, then you have the opportunity of changing really how the disease is clinically viewed. And that's, as me as a PI, that's sort of one of my missions is hopefully it'll be part of my legacy. It seems, well, I few thoughts I have. One, how incredibly empowering it is for the students that you have in their lab to uh, not only have attention paid to this clinical issue that they're suffering from, but to be able to pay that attention themselves and to sort of to arm them with the skills to be able to tackle it um, and advance the field long term. Um, but also that you're working really at the heart of the conundrum, right? So the prevalence of this is much greater than I think most people realize. Um, but I think as a society, we focus really uh, probably rightfully on evidence-based medicine. But if it's, a, if it's a clinical diagnosis that's not really getting studied robustly, then there's a lack of evidence in peer-reviewed literature. Um, and so to be able to take this uh, student 
population that you're training and actually arm them and, and give them these opportunities to advance the literature field such that they can really sort of increase the amount of evidence in the field. Um, goes back to what I said at the beginning, how incredibly empowering that must be to them. Because I think if we can do that, to your point, Chip, then the education will come, right? So the more that you can put out there that's peer-reviewed, that is in the literature and scientifically accepted, um, the, the easier time we'll all have in terms of increasing that education um, aspect of it for these students. So, You know, the, the, if you just look at the economic burden of one patient with EDS, it's, and, and Courtney can tell you she's a patient, it's, it's about a $250,000 economic burden per year, every year of their life. So there's there's about 800,000 we estimate about 800,000 patients with EDS in the US. You multiply that by $250,000 a year, you're in the multi billions of dollars and over a 30-year period it's 10 to 20 trillion dollars. So the economic burden if you get to these patients earlier, then they're going to have less comorbidities. The burden's going to be less and their health and their quality of life is going to be much better. Well, I think it's extremely exciting and obviously critically important. And I think you guys are really reflective of what it means to be at an academic medical center where we can really couple uh, all of those pieces that that as a whole make up your vision, right? So this really uh, important foundational work on the basic science side that drives the field forward hand in hand with the clinical expertise that we happen to have here. And uh, hopefully it's not too far off in the distant future to sort of see your vision realized where we can have an EDS Institute, uh, at least scattered throughout the country, even if we can't get one in every state, but, but really uh, would go a long way towards improving the lives for patients like Courtney who are you know, dealing with this on a daily basis. For any additional questions about our HEDS research and our registry, email edsregistry at musc.edu. You've been listening to the Innovatively Speaking podcast with the Medical University of South Carolina. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support the show, leave a rating and review. To hear more innovative ideas and to share your own, subscribe to the show or visit us on our webpage, web.musc.edu slash innovation. And remember, don't hesitate to innovate.